I'm Michael. And I'm Katie. And this is Missing History, where each week we bring you and ourselves a story about a woman or someone who identifies as female that we want to know more about. We'll share some stories, talk about it, and maybe get a little mad at the patriarchy. Maybe more than a little mad. Okay! Today's episode contains strong language and references to violence and sexual assault. Okay. Hi. Hey. It's been so long. I know. It feels so weird to like not be in the same room as you every day. Don't spoil it. Hi, everyone. We're not in the same room, but it's going to be great. It's going to be like as if we were. Yes. We're doing our first virtual long distance recording for Missing History. Which means the sound is on our own heads. We don't have Jen to fix it all right immediately. She has to like do it in post. Sorry about it, Jen. So we should probably just apologize in advance. It's not Jen's fault. It's on us. It's probably us. Yeah, 100% true. 100% us. Um, Yeah, I feel like I need to get another screen so I can like have my notes and see you. Yeah, I feel like this is definitely like a two screen kind of adventure. And having listened to one of my other podcasts that recommends getting two screens for a better workflow, specifically, they're like, when we record our podcasts, we use two screens. Yeah, I'm understanding now why, because I can look at you, or I can look at my text, or I can look at the audio, but I can't see all three. (laughs) Yep, I got my little 13 inch thing just crammed (laughs) full of windows. And then also not to mention the fact like I'm in a basement right now on a futon. On like a rickshaw, not rickshaw, what rickety shelving unit to be a desk. So we're really operating on all cylinders right now. Yeah, I am currently like sitting on the floor facing my bed in the apartment I'm subletting. And I have my work binder spread out on my bed to like give yeah. myself a flat enough surface to put the yeah. microphone on. Yeah. So high tech, I think, is how we should call Yeah, I think this. we are super profesh. A hundred percent. And you can you can feel it. You can feel it in our in our witty banter. Yeah, we've been yeah. working real hard on this nice back and forth. But I feel like we're getting yeah. a little too meta now. We're talking about <laughs> okay. our process. Can we talk about how people listen to our show now? I know. I think this is the first episode we've recorded since people have started listening. I know. It feels weird. It does. But I think we. it seems like we've been getting good feedback. Yeah? Yeah, I mean... So far, so good. I know both of our moms really enjoy the show. <laughs> so that's really all the, that's... Like, that's all you want I from need. success is the first comment you get on Facebook to be from your mom. And you know what? She came through. Mm-hmm. She came through for me. Yeah, I get a text every time an episode drops by my mom that's like, I'm really good. enjoying this episode. She always mentions a specific thing, so I know she's like actually listened to it. Good. That's good. Yeah. So yeah. we've got two fans. We don't really you know, need any more. But yeah. it's nice to have the rest of you with us. But those two fans should go online and leave us a review wherever you find that and uh, just give us some stars. Hopefully on the five end of the scale would be nice. But the more you review, the more people can find us that aren't related to us and have to like it through familial obligation. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, we're definitely hoping to expand past that very limited window of subscribers as soon as possible. Yeah. But, you know, if we stick to just our clans, I'm okay with it. Yeah, I mean... They're pretty cool people. Yeah, and we've got big enough families that, like, we can definitely make something out of it. Once again, we are both Catholic, so (laughs) far and wide. Yes, living with those dozens of cousins, aunts, and uncles. Yeah, dozen cousins, accurate. Yep, I I think exactly 12 for me. Really? Yep. 
Nice. I don't even know how many. I can't count right now. <laughs> it's the end of the week. I'm so tired. Um, this is gonna be a great. This is gonna be a great story. I'm gonna turn it on. Hold on. Uh, okay. Standing by. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so I'm first. Yes, I think you're first. Okay. I'm first. Okay, Michael. Okay. So I went on this journey. <laughs> I went on this journey of Shirley Chisholm for a minute, which if you know out there who she is, we'll probably do her later. So I won't go into it too much. And I was like, I like her, but it just wasn't, I wasn't syncing up with the uh, research I was doing. So I ended up on this other name and actually through one of my previous episodes, which is Gwen Eiffel mentioned her quite a bit. Okay. So we're and... already tying back to previous episodes. I like that. That's yeah. Do you like that? I'm right hearkening back. I also tend to gravitate towards politicians, maybe because women in politics are sort of, you know, a conversation topic right now in my life. So I feel like I should know more than just the ones that have, that are happening now. I should know the ones that came before because sometimes when we look back, we realize that so many things were similar and different. You know, it's good to learn from the past. I would agree. That's what this whole story is about. You know what I mean? Yeah. This whole podcast journey is about. I was listening to one of my other podcasts today, and I think yeah. I mentioned this to you, that Jeanette Rankin came yeah. up, and I was like, oh, I know all about her now. And it was so yeah, nice to be able to be like, yes, I see exactly where she ties in, talking oh, about like pacifism and that tradition and feminism. And I was mm-hmm. like, Katie, let me know about this already. So yeah. I don't even need to listen to this other podcast anymore. I just need to listen to Missing History. I mean, that's kind of, I think everyone should take that. Yeah, not to like take that tack. plug our own podcast during the podcast, but. That's what podcasting is, isn't it? Rate, review, and subscribe. Always! Yay! Okay, so this lady, Gwen Eiffel, uh, spoke of her very warmly in that clip I played at the end. And uh, I was like, huh, I've never heard of that name. I wonder what, and she mentioned her voice and how her voice really spoke to miss eiffel as a young child and i was like "Hmm, i wonder what that means so i went on youtube and oh my god she wasn't lying so we're gonna talk today about a woman named barbara jordan okay so barbara jordan babs barbara she was probably just barbara she's pretty cool she's born in houston texas february 21st 1936 She's the youngest of three daughters. Her dad's name is Benjamin Jordan, and her mom's name is Arlene. And her dad's a pastor, like Gwen Eiffel, uh, and they they attended church growing up. Um, there's this one little uh, anecdote I found that when she was 11, she quit her piano lessons, which angered her dad because he was like, this is the only way you can get a good job is like you can teach music or you can perform, but you got to make a living. And she was like, mm. I don't want to play the piano. And she says, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I'll manage somehow. So at 11, she's already like, I'm going to do what I want. And I appreciate your input, but I'm not going to take your advice. And uh, she goes to public school in Houston. I should say she's African-American in the South in the 50s. So probably a great time to be there. I would say so. Um, Understatement of the year, perhaps. In Texas, which not any better or worse than the rest of the South. But, you know, some stuff going on. Uh, she gets into debate club in, uh, high school and excels. It's, it's her jam for lack of a better word. She kicks butt at debate and she wins a national contest in 1952, uh, which is the year she graduated. She then goes to Texas Southern University in Houston. She went to Texas Southern because it was integrated and she would have gone to UT, I believe, but it was segregated at the time. Uh She... 
stays on debate. She's kicking butt at debate team. She uh, goes on competitions, and one of her proudest moments, as she said, was that her team tied with Harvard University in a debate, and she was like, hell yeah, I'm doing it right. Yes. So she's not to be messed with. Her oratory is on fire. Um, She graduates with honors and then goes to Boston University Law School, and I found this very odd, and I, I found a little research about it. She was only... She's one of two women to graduate law school from there in 1959, and they were both African-American women from Houston. That's which fascinating. I find, isn't that crazy? I couldn't find much about the other woman. I was like, how is this? That seems like such a... An unlikely coincidence? <sighs> yeah. it was. Yeah. The statistics on that must be crazy. Yeah. Um. Sorry. I just messed my mic. I'm sorry, Jen. This is sorry for you later. Messing with my cord. Hang on. Okay. It's okay. We can fix that in post. Yeah, right. Sorry. So graduates last school. She passes the Massachusetts bar exam, but she's like, "Mm, I'm really into education. I'm going to go teach at Tuskegee in Alabama for a year. Her dad went to Tuskegee. I think there was an opportunity there. She was like, cool. I'll teach political science. She ended up only doing a year. And then she moves back home to Texas. I think she was really close to her family. Mm -hmm. And so I think maybe that flung in Boston and then in Alabama. And she was like, let me just get back to my roots. So she goes back to Texas. She gets the bar. She passes the bar in Texas. So she's practicing law. And uh, she becomes involved in politics. So 1960 campaign for president comes around. It's Kennedy versus Nixon. For those of you that don't know, Nixon will come back in a minute. So just flag him. Don't know if you heard of him, but he's got some shenanigans going on that we're going to talk about in a minute. Oh, that's always a good sign when Nixon shows up, not once, but twice. I'm pretty much whenever he shows up, he's doing shenanigans, I think. Um, So she... She's super into Kennedy. She's on board with that Kennedy Johnson ticket. As you know, Lyndon B. Johnson was from Texas, so there was a lot of passion for him in Texas at the time, so she was behind that as well. She campaigned when he um, ended up being assassinated while in office. She wasn't sure about Lyndon Johnson. She was kind of like, I don't know, it's one of these good old boys Mm -hmm. I grew up with. Yes, he's a Democrat, but I don't know. Um, But she starts to come around. She... uh, is inspired to run for the state house of representatives in Texas in the early sixties. And I just, and it's a giant state, but she's goes for it. And, uh, she wins, she wins in, what is it? Uh, she runs in 62, she runs in 64 and in 66, she, um, actually runs for Senate, Texas Senate. And she wins that. And she's the first woman to be elected to that. Uh, another African-American had won um, going into the Senate in 1883 in the midst of, like, Reconstruction. So and Texas even becoming a state, but it hadn't happened since. So it's another one of these, like, first since Reconstruction. Yeah. Because Jim Crow first, and... For sure, first woman. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, another whole level of, like, this brief moment of progress of Reconstruction that just... just tanked again once they passed all these horrible laws um so she is a stickler for uh her knowledge and adherence to the rules of law and the political process she's very well self-taught i should say and committed to like making her point direct straightforward 
And I think that just kind of won her over in her legislative work because she was a straight talker and she couldn't, when your skill is debate, like how is someone going to argue with you when you could just right weave your way around? So she just kills it in legislative work. Um, She kind of focuses on different things affecting her Houston area, like anti-discrimination in the state laws, uh, urban legislation, and uh, environmental interest. So she's, like she's a, a mover and a shaker. Yeah. And things that affected her community specifically that she felt she could advocate for. Yeah. So it's the late 60s. She's in the Texas Senate. Lyndon Johnson is president. He's trying to pass the civil rights bill, right? So he looks at her and he's like, I bet she'd be good to chit chat with. So he calls her to the White House to be like, will you sit at this table and like listen to my message on civil rights that I'm going to give? And she was like, I am in the Texas Senate and a woman. Okay, great. So she flies out there. And I think there's an element of like, you kind of think you're for the picture rather than for the substance, even in the late 60s, I think. And I think she was sort of like, I don't know what this... I mean, I have immense pride in being asked to go to the White House. You could tell that meant a lot to her. Um, So there's this anecdote she shares about going. And she says, I went up to what I now know was the cabinet room. There were other people assembled, people who were active in the civil rights movement. We sat and waited around a table for the president and vice president. Uh, Well, I sat there really at the far end of the table. I still said to myself, now, Lyndon Johnson probably doesn't know who I am or what I am about. And my name probably just slipped in somehow and got on this list. So the president came in. Everybody stood up. He sat down. We all sat down and we started to discuss this legislation, fair housing legislation. And the conversation was going around the table. The president would call on first one person for a reaction and then another person for a reaction. Then he stopped and he looked at my end of the table and he said, Barbara, what do you think? And she said, well, I just, in the first place, I'm telling you, I didn't know the president knew me. And here, here he's looking down here saying, Barbara, and then saying, what do you think? (laughs) So that was my first exchange with Lyndon Johnson. I'm startled. I got myself organized, of course, not so that I wouldn't stammer since it is not my habit to stammer when talking. And I gave her a response. And then this conversation ensued. So he addresses her. He's the president. He addresses her by her first name and asks her thoughts on it. So you can tell there's like, I just thought a lot of Lyndon Johnson in that little anecdote. I don't usually think a lot of him, but that made me, that made me be like, good job, man. Yeah. That was, that was a nice thing to like, does y- a good check you should in the box. speak up here. You should, you should have a voice at this table. That's why you're here. Yeah, definitely. And, yeah. and I like that. And her- she clearly... Yeah, she she dealt with bigots her whole life, so she's speaking very warmly about this man much many years later, and I don't think she had any reason to like gild Lily or anything. She genuinely appreciated that, respected him back because that's what he showed to her. Yeah. Anyway, and I her, thought it was nice. And her response is, "I was like surprised for a moment, and then I got right down to business." And, and then she's like, "Okay, don't stammer, stammer at the president. Yeah, I'm in the cabinet room for God's sake." Um. Cool. So then she uh, runs for the U.S. U.S. House of Representatives in 1972 for uh, Texas's 18th district. Don't know where that is. I assume it's Houston. 
Uh, she wins. She uh, gets to go get sworn in and everyone of her family go. There's actually a really cool news clip of like her whole family walking through the Capitol being like, we're going to get sworn in. It's going to be so great. That's amazing. It was really sweet. Yeah. She's clearly like the kick-ass lady in her family. Um, she continues to advocate legislation that improves lives of minorities and the poor and disenfranchised and... She sponsors bills that expand workers' compensation and the Voting Rights Act, which had only been around since 1965. So it's not even like 10 years old of a bill. And you know people were trying to like shaft it. So she was like, "Mm mm-mm, not with Barbara here. So then she has this moment in 1974. Do you know what was happening in 1974 with old Tricky Dick Nixon? Um, is it, if it's not mm. Watergate, I don't, but if it's Watergate, Bingo, yes. bingo. We're not going to talk a lot about Watergate because it's talked about enough, but she gets, she's a junior congresswoman and she gets appointed to, uh, I'm sorry, the Judiciary Committee. She's a fresh, I'm, I'm, I should, I should speak with proper terms. She's a freshman house member. I don't know if there's a difference, but anyway, she gets on the Judiciary Committee. They have hearings on the impeachment of Richard Nixon, and these hearings are televised. So her first term, and she's like, boom, on TV, right? And Barbara's not one to shirk from a job, so she's like, cool, I'm going to speak my truth. And she does this speech that is sickening. She... I just, you need to go online and watch the whole thing. It's a good 20 minutes, but the preamble is worth a listen. She she calls out her love of the Constitution, and she she shows you with, like, her complete and utter conviction that she knows the Constitution, so she's not just blaming, like, I'm sorry, she's not, um, what's the word I'm looking for? She's not overstating her love for Mm -hmm. it it's genuine deep and true to her and she also goes by the way like i'm paraphrasing at the beginning she's like by the way when this was written i wasn't included and i want everyone to know that cool george washington forgot about me alexander hamilton must have forgotten about me and it took some time for me to get on this law and now i'm gonna defend it because i'm a part of it and no one's going to take that away. Oh, it's just like, oh, she's just killing it. Anyway, that was her, like, introduction to the U.S. Texas knew her, but now it's like, oh, who's this lady? Just Raymond Nixon in a way. Like, she, yes, didn't, get she it. didn't go for him, but she was like, I will take these hearings seriously to the letter of the law because I have my convictions and you're not going to sway me. And impeachment is why we are doing this. It's a part of the Constitution. We're not trying to be political. It's within our rights. They gave it to us for a reason, and I'm going to do it. It's great. It's such a delightful surprise to see someone taking congressional (sighs) hearings seriously. She takes it so seriously. I "I watched this. This is amazing. She's, like, on fire. And her, I mean, we'll talk about it in a minute. We'll talk about her voice in a minute. Um, So she just kills it in 1974. She's just rocking that, um, rocking that hearing. And her closing point, I'll give you this little quote. 
It is reason, not passion, which must guide our deliberations, guide our debate, and guide our decision. So, yeah. I, th I think it's really cool that they allowed her to speak. I don't think they needed to. I I'm not really sure how that works. I think if you have to ask to want you know, to speak your piece or like does everybody on the hearing get to say something my understanding having listened now to the confirmation hearings is that you go in order of seniority so being a freshman oh. she'd be one of like the last people to speak and so the fact oh, that yeah. like she's saying stuff that is impressive enough for people to cover when they're probably mm -hmm. like hours mm -hmm. into like all of the other people getting up and like mm -hmm. blowing hot air around yeah it's like even yeah. more to the level well it's also brain. the first i think it's the first days of um i'm uh, them televising these hearings mm. so i think there's an element of that as well of like it was new and exciting and garbage because the president <laughs> was a big lie, lie, liar face so everyone was a little more enraptured of what was the process because they had never seen it before totally that's conjecture on my part but anyway she is also the only black woman there on that committee so i'm sure everyone was like cool somebody new <laughs> what do you have to say you might have a different perspective that would be interesting um yeah, uh, da, 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 da. we'll keep talking about it. Um, so as you know, shortly after these hearings happened, uh, Nixon resigns. And it, he resigned on August 9th, shortly after the Judiciary Committee had sent three articles of impeachment, impeachment to the full house for a debate. So I don't think they had quite... Anyway, blah, blah, blah. Watergate, Watergate. What, <laughs> what a creep. Um... And, yeah, so her address was described as Churchillian, if you will, old Churchill. It's just this, it's this moment where she is taken note of by not only her own party, but the U.S. And so um, two years later at the Democratic National Convention, they're like, will you please give a keynote address? And she's like, oh, will I give a keynote address? And it is also worth a view on YouTube because she is so commanding of tone and passion, like measured, passionate intelligence. <laughs> and so you're just like, yeah, I want to be a Democrat. Yeah, we're going to fix this country. Like, it was a perfect casting choice. She should always do the keynote. She was great. She makes an impression. Jimmy Carter kind of has her on a list for a VP, but she was like, I'm never going to be a VP, nor do I want it. I don't want to be a figurehead. Mm-hmm. She says, it is improbable that Carter would take the bold, daring, unconventional, and unsouthern move of naming a black or a woman as his running mate. Certainly not both at once. I think that's a great quote to put out there. I'd be like, he can't do it. He's too white, too southern, too male. Like, he's just not Yeah, going to too, too, yeah, that's just, she called him out and also said the truth. I think that's great. Um she did get one delegate vote for the presidential nominations after that keynote address. Yes. So it's like clearly it worked for one person. And she was like, thank you. Got it. <laughs> um, and Carter ended up interviewing her for a cabinet position when she wanted to be attorney general, which would have been great. But, uh, he, but he did not end up offering her that. And she was like, she didn't want whatever else he was going to give her. So she just kept trucking. So um, she's in 19 still in Congress at this point. Yeah, she's in Congress. Um, she got in there in uh, 70, 72, I want to say. Okay. Um, and then in December 1977, she actually announces that she didn't want to get reelected um, for many reasons. One, uh, and I think we'll talk about it in a minute. 
So in 1979, she goes and she becomes a professor at the Lyndon B. Johnson School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas at Austin, a school she couldn't originally intend because of it being segregated. And she's like, that's okay. I'll just go teach for my boy LBJ school because we're friends now. (laughs) I'm sorry. We're colleagues. They probably weren't friends, but. Workplace proximity associates. I do think there's anecdotes of Lady Bird Johnson really speaking warmly of her. Like, I think they got along really well, too. Wow. Um, yeah. That is and, a nice, like, inspiring bit of progress on Texas's part right there. Yeah. I mean, Texas gets, I mean, the South in general can get uh, a lot of flack for its past. And I'm not saying it shouldn't. I'm not saying it shouldn't. But I think we should examine some Southern heroes that do exist. Like, this woman was from Texas and she was proud. So why can't she be the poster child for Texas? That is a great question. You know Why I mean? can't we put her statue in the Capitol as opposed to all of the other former Confederate generals yeah, floating around right sh- there? Yeah, we should maybe just put more Barbara Jordans up. I would, I'd be down for her. And if you listen to her speak, you would be too. Ugh, we should probably post great. links to that. When this I'm going to. No, I'm going to. I have the two YouTube clips that I want to send to people. Um, so even though she's out of Congress, she still is active. She makes public speeches. She vo- voices her support and her uh, denouncement of other things. And there's some maybe... Okay, guys, I I get really into early life and, like, world building. And then by the time we're getting to people being older and, like, things falling away, I don't want to read as much. And I'm sorry about it. Here's what I'll say. There's maybe some controversial things about her take on immigration in the 90s that I'm, I'm not on board with, but I also think it's very complicated, which, anyway, Clinton puts her on this task force to, like, look at immigration constructively, bipartisanly, like, what can we do? What can we not do? She's from Texas, but a Democrat, but black, but a woman, you know what I mean? She was able to represent a lot of things, and uh, I think maybe her take on it seen through today's lens with our immigration issue that it is now is uh makes us think maybe a little less warmly of her opinions at that time could i tell you what they are in this moment not very clearly which is why i'm gonna just move on is that cool i think okay great sorry about it do better research katie anyway (laughs) one thing that was cool is that she never was without a copy of the constitution in her purse so once again tried and true um so way back in the 70s, at the time that she was kind of getting up and coming in the national conversation, she was actually diagnosed with MS. So oh, wow. while she was doing her congressional career, she was, she did have multiple sclerosis. And As if I she think needed to be like more impressive. Yeah. And I think that's why she probably left Congress when she did. Mm-hmm. It was like, I need to go do something that's a little less strain on my body but still passionate enough. So I will do teaching and this is a good kind of thing. Um, Yeah. And she teaches at the LBJ school of public affairs um, through the 1990s, actually for the rest of her life, I think. And she uh, gave a couple more speeches at the democratic national convention in 88 and 92. Um, In 92, she's actually in a wheelchair at the time, but still speaking. So killing it. And um, in 1984, she's inducted into the Texas Women's Hall of Fame. And there should just be a Texan Hall of Fame and they should all be in it. But it's okay. We'll take what we can get. It's fine. And in 1990, uh, she's inducted into the National Women's Hall of Fame. 
I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be sad if I was inducted into that at some point. So I'm not gonna, sh- I'm not gonna <laughs> crap on it. Um, yeah. And then in 1994, she's awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom. No big deal. You know, casually, um, just the highest civilian honor in the country. It definitely, uh, the MS starts to take effect in the 90s, and when she starts getting in that wheelchair, and she sort of um, starts to break down a little bit. Um, she passes away in Texas in 1996 from complications of leukemia and pneumonia. Mm. Um, she wasn't that old. I want to, I mean, 36 to 96. Is that what I said? She, yep. I think she was 59, about to be 60. Um, and Ann Richards, who was a governor of Texas, which we should do. I don't know if you know that. I She's did not. great. She's great. I'll do her. Don't worry about it. I get the politicians, I guess. Yeah. Um, at her funeral, she said, people talk about what a private person Barbara is, but the American people knew everything they needed to know about her from the moment they met. There was simply, I'm sorry, there was simply something about her that made you proud to be a part of the country that produced her. And she forever redefined what it meant to be a Texan in the eyes of this nation. And Ann Richards is a Texan, so I feel like that just had a little more love for it. Yeah. Um, for her. It was a really warm eulogy that she gave um and then the last little quote i have from her is you've got to be able to love yourself love yourself strongly and not let anybody disabuse you of your self-respect and i think that's very true of her and how she lived her life so yeah that's an amazing quote that's barbara jordan she sounds like such a badass she's a badass i super like her yeah and it's cool not that like Texas has its charms, but it's really awesome to get, like, an awesome woman who you can be like, you are a Texan, mm-hmm. and I have so many reasons to be super proud of you. Yeah. And then, of course, the, like, the problematic parts that we might want to dig into more at some point, but... Yeah. Yeah. Not saying that Texas well, doesn't produce a lot we can be proud of. No, I think but. it's also true, like, uh, there's something to be said for the people, like... Texas was her home too. And I'm not saying you shouldn't leave a place if you're not happy there. I think you should. I think you should go where you want to be happy, right? But I think there's also some credit to be given to somebody that grew up in this like circumstance of being, you know, in the South and then choosing to go back and be like, yeah, I'm going to make it better. And when I leave, it'll be better than it was before. And I have this, you know, I, she had intense internal strength to be able to do that, I think. Definitely. And a lot of these uh, women politicians, I think, do that, where they're like, yes, it's crap. It's never going to get better if I don't do something about it, you know? Yeah. And I think that's that's something I admire. That's something that I wouldn't necessarily do myself. So I think it's interesting. Yeah. And very, very inspiring. Cool. Do you want to hear a little Barbara Jordan? Yes. I would love that. Jordan purpose of general debate not to exceed a period of 15 minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Mr. Jordan. Mr. Chairman, I join my colleague, Mr. Rangel, in thanking you for giving the junior members of this committee the glorious opportunity of sharing the pain of this inquiry. Look Mr. at Chairman, her. Chairman, you are a strong man, and it has not been easy, but we have tried nice. as best we can to give you uh, as much assistance as possible. Earlier today, we heard the beginning of the preamble to the Constitution of the United States. We, the people, 
It's a very eloquent beginning. But when that document was completed on the 17th of September in 1787, I was not included in that we the people. I felt somehow for many years that George Washington and Alexander Hamilton just left me out by mistake. But through the process of amendment, interpretation, and court decision, I have finally been included in We the People. Ugh. Yes. She's boss. It goes on for another 15 minutes, but... And I can totally see why Gwen Ifill is so taken by her voice. Yeah! Like, that is an incredible speaking voice. Yeah. She's described as having, like, the voice of God in many of my research yes, moments. I would have her narrate God I was just like, all the time. I hope God sounds like Barbara Jordan. <laughs> that would feel very reassuring. Yes, please. Yeah, right? Yeah. So there you go. Barbara Jordan. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Awesome. Yeah, she is. We'll take a short break and then we'll be back with my woman. Okay, I'm ready. Amazing. So. Oh, wait, wait. I get to make you full screen because I can put my notes away. (laughs) Just sit back and relax. Yes, we're gonna gonna do some uh, some economics in my part today. Okay. And I think the best place to start is with the huge giant caveat that I know almost nothing about economics, other than what I've learned by listening. <laughs> what did my teacher, t- the the, uh, what's the snake? <laughs> the demand, supply and demand. Never. Oh, mind. you are already I clearly w- didn't way past me. <laughs> clearly didn't retain it. So just skip it. Just keep going. Yeah. Okay. Um, economics. Economics. Great. And we had some like pretty meta podcast conversations at the top of the show. And I think just continuing on that theme. So big shout out to NPR politics, one of my favorites, but also planet money from NPR might be one of my favorite podcasts of all time. And was Mm -hmm. listening to one of their episodes the other day. And there's this quote that really stuck with me and I will now deliver it in full quote. (laughs) Economics has a lady problem End quote. And what they mean by that is, only one in five economists is a woman. And that's mm-hmm. like a pretty, that's been a pretty constant problem for the field, basically since its inception in the early 20th century. It is just an incredibly male dominated field. And is that because they have all the money? <laughs> it is a rather open question about <laughs> do economists reflect the power structures that exist? I would go ahead and say, Michael. Is that a probably yes? That all power structures. <laughs> I'm sorry. Let me think about. Okay, hold on. I don't understand why that's a question. Of course it does. Mm. Of course it does. Yeah. Why wouldn't it? Well, that leaves. What's us- so special about economics? That it's like we don't have a gender problem here. It just so happens. <laughs> why would they be the only ones? Well, it's you bananas. know they are. They bring reason to bear on social questions and questions of resources and all of these things. And the big thing that I think I'm going to take away from this is our woman today is the only super famous influential female economist of the 20th century. There's just the one. And her name Uh, is Joan Robinson. Joan Robinson. Um, And she is the one famous female economist of the last century. Um, All right. So she is born into a well-to-do family in England in two thousand or in nineteen oh three. Um, 
Her dad is Major General Sir Frederick Morris. He is a major figure in the British Army at this time, um, although he's about to get kicked out of the army for criticizing the government's policy during World War One. And what policy was that? Um, of sending waves and waves of soldiers running at trenches with machine guns to their death. How controversial. <laughs> you would think not, but he actually gets yeah. sort of unceremoniously booted out of the army for saying that, like, maybe that's not the best idea. Um, and then her mom, Helen Margaret Marsh, comes from a long line of academics. So a okay. lot of her relatives are sort of running schools or heads of colleges at Cambridge or Oxford. Um, so she has these two sort of lineages combining in her. One is this very, like, academic, very intellectual family tree, and the other one is this kind of iconoclastic, rebellious streak, or at least as rebellious as you can be in upper-class England in the early mm -hmm. 20th century. And so both of those things are going to be manifested pretty strongly in her as she goes through her life. Mm -hmm. um, and so... When she's growing up, she goes to a private girls' school in London and then goes on to Cambridge to study economics. She graduates in 1925, but doesn't technically get a degree because Cambridge won't award degrees to women until 1948. Why? Because women Why are... Why could you go there but not get a degree? That is a stunningly good question, and I didn't dig into it as much as I wanted to, but I think oh. that would be like a great episode for us to do of just like the weird things educational institutions did to get around having to give degrees to women what 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 okay i don't think our 21st century brains can wrap it around a reason so mm. let's just skip it all um, right and she scored and she does really well too she gets um i can't remember exactly how the british grading system works but it's not like first honors but basically like top second honors i think so like a really like Doing good work at Cambridge. Is that because they um, couldn't give her first honors because she was a woman? Hard. It is hard to say. Um, Who knows? As with most of the things in her life, it will be hard to say how much of it has to do with her and how much of it has to do with the fact that she is a her. Um, so when she graduates uh, in 1925, she almost immediately marries one of her classmates, Austin Robinson, who's a fellow economist. Um, there's this kind of stunning picture from her that I think we'll have to post from the 1920s of her in this like long flowy patterned dress and then princess Leia style hair buns that are just oh, like okay. these giant orbs on the side of her head. That was a real style? Apparently so. It's the first her, time I've ever seen it and it looks she's pretty She's literally stunning. ahead of her time. <laughs> she's, she's great. Yes. Okay. Um, and so after they get married, they move to India, which at this point is still a British colony. Um, to take up roles in the British colonial government. Her husband mm. is tutoring an Indian prince. And while she's there, she ends up doing some research for a committee on Anglo-Indian trade relations. So she actually will go back to London to sort of be an advocate for increasing trade between the UK and India. Uh, oh. Which is, I find super interesting, mostly because it seems to be this thing that sparks what will end up being a really long-running interest of hers in developing economies. So a lot of her later research ends up being about, like, India or China. Um, and it also, I think, is sort of the spark of some of the more left-wing ideas that we're going to see play out with her in a little bit. It's this really close-up experience with, like, what does British colonialism look like in action? Mm. There's mm -hmm. these kind mm -hmm. of fascinating letters um, and diary entries from when they're there about like riding their horses down to the like 
horse exercise yards in the morning to like make sure the children are drilling their horses correctly and then they ride back to the palace to do a couple hours of tutoring before heading off to the club in the evening for drinks and conversation with the other like british officers and their wives in town well it's a very different world as it's a different life (laughs) in a short yeah that's crazy yeah um so they spend a few years doing that and then they move back to Cambridge in the late 20s. Uh, her husband gets a position as an assistant professor. Joan, however, is unable to get an academic appointment there and so has a informal relationship with the university until she gets appointed a junior assistant lecturer in 1931. Um, so remember her and her husband graduate the same time with the same degree. She's like doing... She didn't get a good degree, Michael. That's, I should apologize, yes. They graduated She's the same She's probably time. not qualified. <laughs> she doesn't have a degree. They didn't give degrees. Well, you don't have one then. Mm. So we can't hire you. But I can't get one. Well, then I guess we'll never hire you. So Yeah. And so they eventually do Go hire Go have a her. baby. Sorry. Mm. Go ahead. Well, see, this is the thing. So she's going to manage to do a whole bunch of stuff and also has two kids in the subsequent decade. So yeah. as we, I think, are getting used to, she is doing a lot of child raising and being a complete badass. Yeah. So, you know. At least she's not 13 having babies. Right? I think this is another one of our, like... What a turn we've made. (laughs) Age-appropriate marriages. I think Mm -hmm. this is, like, number two, maybe number three. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. But it will definitely be, hopefully, a pattern we continue with. Although, there's always a chance we'll go back to the Middle Ages and get some nice 13-year-old brides again. No doubt that we're going to find some. Yes. Um... So in terms of her career, though, it's, as I'm sure you will be unsurprised to know, she advances very slowly in academia in the United Kingdom. Um, Mm -hmm. If you want to talk about, like, something that is quintessentially old boys club, it is the universities, especially Cambridge and Oxford, in the middle of the 20th century. Like, literally, like, men in smoking jackets with cigars in back rooms, like, making decisions and hiring, you know, their buddies. Um, So even though she is hired in 1931, it takes six years for her to get promoted to being a full lecturer. She is not made professor until 1965, so 30 years later. Um, And she only becomes a fellow, which is sort of like the most prestigious appointments you can get at Oxford or Cambridge until 1979. So she is definitely on the slow track academically, even though, as we're going to find out in a second, she is one of the leading economists of her age, period. Yep. Um, Great. Yeah. So some quotes that I thought were just, like, incredibly misogynistic and thus worthy of reading aloud. Um, Okay, hold on. Okay, Pre- hang on. Preparing yourself? Okay, I'm, yeah, I'm ready. <laughs> okay, so one of her uh, colleagues, in an attempt to, uh, I guess, seem like he's really impressed with her, because he obviously, like, they collaborated a lot, and he and her actually did a lot of work together, but his way of showing that he was really impressed with her is that he voted her, quote, an honorary man. So, you know, her only value would be if she was a man, then this would actually be, you know valuable and there's Mm -hmm. another economist who after reading an article she's written writes to one of his friends asking quote who is joan robinson the christian name sounds like a woman's but the article seems to me too clever for a woman end quote 
And I just, like, wish our listeners could see the look on your face right now. (laughs) Well, it just makes me think, like, you gotta really love what you're doing when everyone you work with is a dick. Yeah. To stay there for how long? 30 years? 40-something years, yeah. You gotta really be like, I'm good at this, and I'm gonna keep doing it and just be great at it. And then everyone you run into during your day just makes you want to pull your hair out. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, great. Yeah. And then For some reason I thought it was going to be worse. I mean, it's not that it's not bad. I just, you know. Well, you know, we've made we've made some progress right at this point. People I find the misogyny that touches my life most regularly is when guys think it's really funny to say something and then it's super not. And those with the, that's what those two quotes made me think of like, "Oh, Jimmy really thought that was going to be hilarious." And then Joan had to be like, no nope. cool can i go do my notes now <laughs> you know what i mean <laughs> Ugh. okay yeah great um and it'll get better in a second but the last thing is that in 1975 it's anticipated that she's going to win the nobel prize in economics mm. to the point where the time magazine actually writes a really big feature about her um mm-hmm. pretty much everyone thinks she's going to win she's done a lot of groundbreaking work at that point and then turns out she doesn't yeah, who picks those? Uh, the Swedish Central Bank is my understanding, which if we're going to take a guess at who's running that institution in the 70s. Yeah. Yeah. Sweden? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. Great. Moving on. Yep. Um, <laughs> one really sweet thing that I did read about is that while she's at Cambridge, she supports student Shakespeare productions in the parks. Oh, get out. Which is something very close and dear to my heart. Um, and she's a pretty big patron of sort of campus arts and culture while she's at the university, um, which nice. as someone who benefits from patrons of campus arts and culture, I very much appreciate. Yeah. Uh, I love that. Yeah. Um, so in addition to her being like a pretty badass economist, she also takes the opportunity to use her platform as an opportunity to speak about sort of similar stuff to what Jeanette Rankin used her platform to talk about, which is like, as a woman, I have a really personal connection to war in a sense that like, it is my children who will go fight it. And I can't. And that especially coming from a military family, like she had seen the impact of war Mm. pretty close up and about as close as you could get being a woman of her class at that point. And so she, when world war two comes around, takes a pretty noted stance against it even though a lot of her family is supporting it and her husband actually goes into government and is doing some work for the war ministry. Um, and she comes at it from two angles, not just from a moral angle, although she does say that war is immoral, but also from an economic perspective that military spending is destructive to a national economy because all of the money you're pouring into armaments is money that isn't going to developing public services or infrastructure. So in effect, it is just wasted government spending because you're mm. either literally going to like blow it up somewhere or you're going to use it to destroy property and either way economically that is not a good investment yeah um and it's a okay. critique that she'll end up expanding later in her life especially during the cold war when all of these governments are making huge investments in arms yeah. and developing a military industrial complex and she'll consistently say that this is both immoral but it is also a hugely ineffective way to deploy government resources Um, Mm. which I just thought was really interesting because oftentimes when you come at sort of a pacifist argument against war, it's 
very much grounded in that like moral argument but she's like yeah it's... i'm an economist like this is how i think about the world and if i really think about this i don't think we can like make a good argument for it either from an economics yeah. perspective yeah but you're also talking to people in fear so it's like no matter what argument you make how well reasoned it is it's like you're still trying to talk somebody down from being scared and no one is thinking rationally when they're scared yeah um, emotional so unsurprisingly that doesn't go super well obviously like mm-hmm. britain is heavily involved in world war Two and the cold war um it's kind of makes some rifts in her family and she has to be very careful sort of the line she's walking if she's going to speak publicly about this given her husband is working for the government and she comes from this like long military heritage um but i think now might be like a good moment to talk about like what are the economic stuff that she cares about and again this is where things get really dangerous because like my entire economics education is listening to npr podcasts so if I misspeak, and I will, I apologize in advance to our economics listeners. I won't know. <laughs> so let's just go for it. Awesome. So she is going to begin her work in the 20s in what is called classical economics, which is basically the tradition of Adam Smith, this idea that markets are self-regulating and they are governed by natural laws, and that the less government intervention you can have in the economy, the better which is sort of the way of thinking about economics at Cambridge at this point in the 20th century. Mm -hmm. Um, And what I learned in reading this is like Cambridge is sort of one of the major centers for economic thinking in the English speaking world, basically throughout the 20th century. Like there are any big development in economics is at some point going to be related to Cambridge. And so Mm. by going there, getting her education there and then working there, she is going to be at the heart of a lot of the really big debates in economics in the 20th century. Um, And so when she starts working, her early work addresses something that is very like near and dear to my heart, which is wages. um, And particularly this idea that wages exist in a system where in an ideal world, if there are more people working and there are people who still want to hire people, you need to raise wages in order to attract better employers, better employees. What? Um, and if you've been sort of, if you understand that idea, it's very similar to like a monopoly idea that when companies have monopolies over something, they can make the price whatever they want. And therefore mm-hmm. the price isn't necessarily going to reflect what the markets say it should be. And mm-hmm. she extends that into the market for employees so mm-hmm. that if a company controls a particular employment market they can depress wages such that you can't actually get the only place to work exactly um then there's no reason to pay people what they yeah yeah and so the um i'm trying to think of what the so the example that um sort of stuck with me is if you are the one hospital in a rural montana town you can of course you set the wages for doctors and nurses in that town And if they want to work in that town, they have to work for those wages. It's not like they can go to the hospital across the street and get a better deal. There's no demand. Yeah. Yeah, Or like a competition. There's no competition. Exactly. And that's sort of exactly how she frames this thing. It's called monopsony. So it's kind of, it's like monopoly, but where it's not quite like a perfect monopoly. So there might be like two hospitals in the city. um, And so there is some competition, but there's not a lot for wages. And so 
those two hospitals can still keep wages pretty low. As long as they're, like, in agreement. Right. Kind of keeping an eye on each other. Exactly. So they can, you know, keep things pretty much like a monopoly, even if there is technically a little bit of competition. Um, Yeah. And the really interesting thing is this is a concept that in recent years has really come back into vogue because there's been this big question as the economy in the U.S. particularly recovers, why with such low unemployment has wages not gone up? And like wage levels in the U.S. have stayed pretty stagnant for the last couple are, of years. I was gonna say, are you talking about now? Yeah, talking about when she was talking. Like about right it. now, it's a it's been a problem. Oh, I didn't realize we had a wage problem, Michael. We, oh, really? Like, do tell me more. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Uh, of course, it's garbage. Yes, of course, it's garbage. Um, why wouldn't it be? Exactly. And the and the one of the the big <sighs> theories that people are now turning to is they're looking at her work and like this actually makes a lot of sense because the. So much of the U.S. economy is controlled by so few companies. Like, if you think about the tech sector, there's, like, four or five big companies that can kind of set wages wherever they want. And a lot of other industries have consolidated, too. So there's all of these monopsonies in so many different parts of the U.S. economy that... that... I mean, the one that... Sorry. No, no, go for it. The one that touches all of our lives is entertainment every day, right? Mm -hmm. So, like, who... Like, Disney owns... Disney owns everything. Right. It's one of them, right? Disney owns NBC and ABC now? I think just ABC. I think Comcast owns NBC. That's true. But right, right. It's like these like three or four big but companies. But they just bought own... Fox or something, didn't they? I think someone did and someone else we just bought We don't even like, know because they don't tell us because they also own the news channels, you guys. Let's all be worried about it. Yes. Okay. Right. But so that's. Go to PBS. <laughs> go watch. Go watch Judy Woodruff. <laughs> She'll tell you what's going on. Trust her. Oh my god oh man so much inter podcast but that literally i mean that's that's something that, i mean netflix right mm-hmm. who owns them who's going to own them soon somebody or who are they gonna own yeah it's yeah it's it, scary right and so it's all of this consolidation and so it's really interesting to think that like this is the work she's doing in the 30s but it still mm. is like super relevant to the kind of problems that we're looking at today well and especially i wonder how much of it is like how i feel like most well like, brand names could have been more localized back then. There just wasn't as much national brand. Mm-hmm, definitely. Maybe that's ignorant of my mind, but I just think it wasn't as prominent as it is now. But now it feels like, you know, you go to any town in America and there's certain businesses that are going to be there, right? 100%. And local, local versus big business, all of that stuff. Like, there's a Walmart everywhere. You know, this is pre all of those stores, so. Yeah. Um, yeah. So she turns out to be a very forward-thinking economist. Way to go, girl. Yep. Um, nice. But surprisingly, uh, pretty soon after she does this work, she actually totally switches, effectively switches sides. So in the 30s, there's this debate between classical economics and then the economics of John Maynard Keynes, who is a Cambridge economist who in the United Kingdom is sort of responsible for taking the UK out of the great depression and it's his research is a lot of what the new deal is based off of and it's this idea that governments should borrow money in order to spend in order to make the economy better right if that sounds familiar it's because pretty much every government in the world now uses that as their basic model for how the government Mm -hmm. should be involved with the economy it's that borrowing Mm -hmm. at a responsible level is the most effective way for the government to improve the economy. It's like you borrow yeah, money. Yeah, I don't. And spend I it. I think I know of one government that wouldn't agree with that 
tack mm. but sure right but so the, right that this sounds is... like what you just said sounds like it would make paul ryan's hair stand up Ye- which would be a task because i think he glues it down every morning <laughs> but i could be wrong yes sorry and paul I don't... ryan i shouldn't judge your looks and i think I, we, I think could, we could spend hours talking about how person i'm not gonna talk about it anymore <laughs> go ahead sorry <laughs> And we could spend like hours talking about how Republican economics isn't actually grounded in economic thinking really at all. But that's that's going to get me down a rabbit hole that we don't really you know, want to do at this moment. I'll just I'll just say whenever I was taught about the Great Depression and like sort of the well, the Great Depression is not fair, but. Oh, when I was originally taught, like, what do, what are the economics of these two parties, right? Like, what do, what are they based in? And it was always told, like, Hoover was Republican, FDR was Democrat, FDR kind of pushed the new kind of Democratic agenda of socialism for, like, but, like, American socialism, which is lighter and a little more chill than, like, full out. And I was always struck by this quote of just, like, Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. If I can do it, you can do it. Was sort of like a Republican feel of the economy. It's like no freeloading. You got to work hard to play hard, you know? Mm -hmm. And while I get that, you can't tell someone to pull up their bootstraps if they don't have boots. Yeah, I think that's a great... So how about we all just buy each other some boots and then we can all go to work? That's sort of how I feel. Now, that's way too simple and that's why I'm not an economist. But anyway... What else did she figure out, Michael? Um, actually, that that sort of metaphor stuff is apparently what she was sort of famous for. So one of the the interesting things that we'll touch on in a sec is like she doesn't have a lot of math background, yeah. And so actually, a lot of the work she ends up doing is sort of like taking a really detailed, really close look at metaphors like that. Me like maybe this works, maybe this doesn't, but like let's see what it would look like if we think about something like that. Ugh. Um, and so That's she. Amazing. One of the big things she ends up doing in the 30s is is part of this group called the Cambridge Circus, which is a group of economists who are sort of working with Keynes to help him refine his theories. They're critiquing them. They're like helping him develop what will eventually be his like big, big book, which is called The General Theory. Um, And it turns out that she ends up being one of the five people who he trusts to like review that manuscript before sending it to publication. Um, nice. And if we think back to the beginning of our podcast, where we were like, 20% of economists are women. He has yeah. one out of five of the people reviewing his book is a woman. So yep. right yep. on the money. That shakes out. Yeah. Yep. Um, and then the next thing she gets involved in, and I'm going to butcher this because I only vaguely understand it, um, is there is in the 60s something called the Cambridge controversy, which I don't think if you're not an economist, what I'm about to say is not going to sound really groundbreaking, but apparently it's like earth shattering. In 90% of our listeners are economists. I have no doubt. I have no (laughs) doubt about it. Great. Then for them, they'll understand why this is like absolutely world changing. So basically what she does is she calls into question this idea that you can aggregate capital. And I think what that means. Do you like that? Yeah, that was great. That, that was, feels like the appropriate energy. Yeah. Oh my God, I'm shocked. <laughs> okay, keep going. Um, and so like one of the big things that economists do is they take all of the different things involved in a business. So say like if you have a car factory, 
It's got yeah. the robots that make the car. It's got the aluminum that goes into the car, the rubber that goes into the tires, the building yeah. that the factory is in, paper clips in the office, like all of that stuff. And mm. you try to figure out how much capital does that business actually have. And mm. to do that, you can't, like, there's not some equation that says, like, eight and a half paper clips is equivalent to a tire. The only way you can do mm. that is by using a unit of exchange. And, of course, the unit of exchange that economists use is money. So 20,000 paper clips costs about the same as the aluminum body for one tire. And it's that uh -huh. cost that allows you to compare them or, like, uh -huh. aggregate it all together. But in order to figure out what the aggregate of all of those things is, you need to know the price of them. But what right. she ends up saying is that in order to make that measurement you need to know what the price is so you're basically using price as a piece of the equation to figure out price which is to a figure out value right like you can't you can't use the value of something to figure out what the value of something is because oh, you I need see. to know the okay. value in order to figure out the value but you can't figure out the value without knowing the value uh -huh. and eventually where this all lands in the 60s is that basically what economists agree is like that is correct but we're going to keep doing it anyway because it's really useful. Yeah. So it turns out it is this huge controversy. There's all of this back and forth about it. And basically where everyone lands is... it turns into like math theory. It's, than, right. Okay. It's like you can't... Mathematical theory. Yeah. It's this... Say. It's Right. It's this really nitty gritty like we like... What is real? Yes. Exactly that. It's like what is real and we're going to recognize that this isn't real, but it's useful enough that we're going to keep doing it anyway. Mm. And so that's like the big controversy that she gets involved in. And she's where does she land? In she's it? super on the like, this makes no sense. Why would you do this? Like, this is a paradox and you guys aren't resolving the paradox. And basically she wins. Like she gets everyone to admit that like, yeah, it's a paradox. But then pretty much everyone keeps doing what they were doing in the first place. Yeah. And just with like a little asterisk next to it. That's like, mm. we get that this, this is, is weird wrong, but we're going to do it because it's really useful. Yeah. Um, and as she gets older, she actually like keeps in a way like moving away not just from her classical work but from some of the like earlier work that she's doing with Keynes and starts looking at Marxism and this is the thing that like really gets her in trouble. Uh -oh. Obviously it's the Cold War. If you're Yeah, in... she's looking into Marx in the Cold War. Yeah, she, bold choice, lady. She makes that choice and she's one of the first people who like seriously considers Marx as an economist. Like Marx basically gets written off in most of western economics because He's kind of antithetical to a lot of, like, what Western European economics thinks about, which mm. is capitalism. And she takes, like, a really serious look at it. It's like, what does it mean to consider Marx as an economist? And basically what she walks away from is this idea that, like, the labor theory of value, which is Marx's central idea that we should value things by the amount of work that goes into them, as opposed to the supply and demand that regulates capitalism. She's not really impressed with that. She's like, I don't think that's going to work, but is really taken by this idea of long-term reproduction, which is basically the idea that capitalism requires growth to survive and perpetuate. So you can't ever really have a capitalist economy that isn't focused on growth. And then obviously mm. that focus on growth comes with all of the like positives, but also negatives of being really right. driven at like growing profit and growing output at all costs. Um, 
And what really gets her in trouble is she's looking at this and then she's sort of applying these ideas to China and to the Soviet Union and to North Korea and ends up saying some like really positive things about those countries and some what, especially with the North Korean case, things that in yeah, retrospect don't look super good. Uh, no, not great. She is like writes some pretty praiseworthy things about Mao in the forced also collectivation. It's just like that's in a lot of you took a turn. Yeah, and that's what a lot of people think actually has her lose the Nobel in the seventies is not so much that she's a female economist but that she's a female economist with deep-seated socialist sympathies and yeah that's not gonna fly well the and there's like social sympathies but then like also cleaving to regimes that we know were that's the problem with socialism is like the men <laughs> perverted it at the top you know what i mean i'm not saying i'm super socialist by the way but <laughs> i'm saying like you know like any system of power like it was perverted to to benefit very few yes rather than the in my view of it maybe i'm wrong but that's my take i don't don't think of mao as a super chill dude no and i would say the uh dictators of north korea definitely don't yeah also not super chill no 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 a lot of problems there yeah before we start singing praises exactly so that that sort of is the balancing act with looking at her is she has a lot of really groundbreaking work and is doing a lot of the sort of like explaining and popularizing of Keynes's theories that take it from being this like central thing in economics to being this like fundamental way that most people understand the economy working. And that's really Mm -hmm. important. And then on the other side, there's this deeply problematic stuff with like communist dictatorships that we kind of have to tease out. Um, But so that's sort of like the, the three big things of her work. She's got the monopsopy, Monopsony. That word, you're just, you're, no, you were killing it. You were killing it. Um, you got it. Then the Cambridge controversy and then the stuff about developing economies and socialist authoritarian regimes. Um, and then so she keeps working through the late 70s. Um, she passes away in 1983. Um, and before she does that, she sort of spends her, maybe her last like 15 years really actually enjoying the recognition that she should be getting for all of her contributions. So obviously not the Nobel, but in, um, I think in 1949, she gets offered the vice presidency of the econometric society, which is one of the Mm. like major international societies of economists. Um, It's specifically for economists who are really mathematically based. And she is supposedly said to have responded um, that she didn't want to oversee a journal she couldn't read. Because as she put it, I never learned math, so I had to think, which oh. I don't want me to be like taken as like pooping on math. Math is really <laughs> important and it's great and there's like lots of amazing things. But I think it's kind of incredible that she is such a like foundationally important economist and she never really mastered mathematics, but is still able to make some really stellar contributions to the field. Maybe because she thought differently. And I think that's really, you know? I think that's really what it is. She couldn't rely on mathematics i forgot to say bless you earlier when you sneeze so bless you thank you I appreciate um it. yeah she probably just had a different way of looking at a problem because she didn't have that kind of background yeah so. um and the other great quote from her um which is sort of in a similar vein is that the purpose of studying economics is not to acquire a set of ready-made answers to economic questions 
but to learn how to avoid being deceived by economists. Uh, which nice. I mean, she just seems like super self-aware about like the power of her field to influence public policy and the yeah. like utter bullshit that a lot of economists get away with spewing because most of us don't understand what they're saying anyway. And so can't yeah. tell if it's utter well, bullshit or if it's actually yeah. real. Well, and like her, f- I mean, how old did she say she lived till? She lived till she was 79. So that's 1980 something? Yeah, 1983. 1983. Oh my God. So she lived through two world wars, Great Depression, mm-hmm. recessions in the 60s and 70s. Yep. Uh, uh, oil embargo, a, like atomic she... bombs, Cold War. She didn't see the end of the Cold War, but like that's a lot of things. And economics playing a huge role at the very beginning with, like, getting out of the Great Depression whilst in wartime. What does that mean? How do you get back on track? And her field being at the forefront of, like, a lot of solutions of the time. Yeah. Um, And I think she had, like, a really acute sense, especially given all of the focus she ended up doing on developing nations that, like, economics has the potential to be a really useful tool but it is not this, like, blameless, ideal, like, perfect way of looking at the world. Like, it has mm. its advantages and its disadvantages, and it's a tool, and you have to really mm-hmm. think about it as a tool, mm-hmm. and that it can be used well or it can be used poorly. And I think of all of the sort of, like, really famous economists, she had perhaps, like, the clearest sense of, like, its value as a tool, but that it shouldn't be overvalued. Nice. Yeah. So I think, like... Not that I have a, f- a breadth of economists to choose from, but I think she's definitely I my favorite economist. A, I think like I think if I had you to pick, did a great job. I mean, I I was with you. I mean, you said aggregate a lot, and it took me a second, <laughs> but I was with you. I I got it. I got what you were putting down. Definitely have to say I like, like thank you, Planet Money. I would not have mm. been able to do any of this if I hadn't listened to like mm-hmm. two years worth of that show in the last mm-hmm. month and a half. Mm-hmm. Um, but definitely now, now having a favorite economist, and it is Joan Robinson. Right. We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of Missing History. If you have suggestions for women you think we should profile, email us at missinghistorypodcast at gmail.com. You can get in touch with us at Miss History Pod on Twitter or Missing History on Instagram. We're also on Facebook at Missing History. If you like the show, please rate, review, and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode was produced by Jen and co-executive produced by Frankie the Dog. Thank you for listening to Missing History.